0: Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive Podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Casper Kyle, author of The Power of Ritual, and co-host of the award-winning podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. A Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School, Casper is also the co-founder of startup Sacred Design Lab, a research and design consultancy working to create a culture of belonging and becoming. Co-author of the seminal paper How We Gather, Casper has presented his research at venues including the Aspen Ideas Festival, Institute for the Future... And Cannes Lions Festival, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Vice, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post, as well as PBS. He holds a Masters of Divinity and Public Policy from Harvard University, and prior to moving to the US, he co-founded Campaign Bootcamp and the UK Youth Climate Coalition, both training and mobilising young activists. In today's conversation, we explore how we might engage in practices that bring us a deeper sense of depth, connection, and meaning, and how we might revisit the art and power of ritual through a modern lens. So Casper, it's such a great pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to excited to chat.
0: Yeah, me too, especially having read your book, which we're going to dive into momentarily. But I'd like to start by asking you what you think is happening in the global human psyche right now, if we can start with such an open frame.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, well, I couldn't claim to speak beyond what I know, but I think certainly we're experiencing the inherent interconnectedness of our existence in in a whole new way, certainly through this pandemic. We're not all in the same boat, but we are all in the same storm. Mm. You know, people have very different levels of access to safety, to vaccines, to everything else, but certainly we're amidst a shared experience like no other, at least in my lifetime. So... That's probably the <laughs> best way I could frame it.
0: I love the idea of the storm being something that connects us, but our experiences are so distinct. So I first came across your fascinating work as I was researching books and literature around rituals. And I discovered your beautifully illustrated hardback edition of the book that I have here called The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices, which I think came out in June of 2020. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah, last year.
0: Mm. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it was as well as being very rich and poetic, it was very accessible. And I think a lot of (laughs) these books can be quite impenetrable. And and so it's a real joy to read something which you can immediately get some grasp on. So I'd Mm. love to ask, what inspired you to write it? Both maybe your personal journey and also if you can speak to the fascinating paper that you co-published with Angie Thurton entitled How We Gather, that would be great.
1: Yeah, well, I'll try and put those two answers together, kind of starting with my own personal experience. But I grew up in England. I was born and raised in Sussex. But my parents are both Dutch. And I went to a, a Steiner school as a kid. Oh, no so I don't know, Yeah. <laughs> For those of <laughs> you familiar with Waldorf education, you'll you'll start to connect the dots very quickly in my story. <laughs> so, you know, the, uh, we, we weren't a religious family by any means. I, I didn't really know anyone who went to church or synagogue or anything else. And certainly, you know, coming out as gay as a teenager, my experience of religious institutions were that they were either irrelevant or cruel. You know, mm. I, I was just completely disinterested. Um, but nonetheless, in part because of that experience at the Waldorf School, you know, there was a very rich ritual life. So on Christmas Eve, we would go and sing uh, to the local barnyard animals on the farm uh, with all sorts of Christmas carols. We (laughs) would, you know, (laughs) we would dance around the Maypole on May Day and, and, you know, bake pancakes on pancake day. And just the the whole calendar was filled with specific things to do on specific days. And Mm -hmm. it really gave shape and structure, certainly to to my childhood in a way that felt very beautiful, really, Mm -hmm. and and a very strong community uh, built around the school and just the village I grew up in as well. So although it was never spoken of as religious or or even spiritual, nonetheless, that kind of texture was woven through my upbringing. My rebellious phase happened. But for me, it was less again my parents, and more about international corporations and global climate change. Mm, So (laughs) I got very involved in mobilizing young people around the United Nations negotiations on, on climate change and really spent my kind of first professional career as an activist wow. after going to university. But the reason I ended up exploring religion in the way that, that I do now is partly because of the, the lack of power that I felt I had as an activist. You know, as a social change person, you're often engaged with policies, you know, how, how can we do things differently, as well as politics, which is thinking about the, the, the power levers that you need to pull in order to enact those policies. But the thing I kept hitting up against was that we are living with a paradigm which actually limits what those possibilities might be. And and mm-hmm. so by that, I mean, you know, do we talk about, you know, a forest as a natural resource, which mm-hmm. is to be managed? Or do we talk about it as an inherently worthy, sacred thing? You mm-hmm. know, those two different frames totally change how you think about what to do or or what you can do with a bunch of trees, for example. So all of that is to say, I became more and more interested in thinking about these uh, global... Problems like climate change through a different lens, and found my way into graduate school uh, doing a, a joint public policy and divinity school uh, mm-hmm. program at Harvard, where I met Angie. And Angie and I both came in as people who were not traditionally religious, but really interested in in how religion and culture interact, and particularly to look at people of you know our generation as, as millennials who were not going and participating in religious life in institutions, going to church, etc., but who were building. Communities that had clear values and Mm. and a set of purposes and and, and deep relationships that, to us, started to look quite religious. Mm. And I I can talk more about that. But essentially, that that kind of professional interest and and, and my own personal longing of wanting to be within that kind of rich community structure really shaped my work.
0: Mm, That's so fascinating. And I think what you mentioned there about community, which you mentioned briefly, you write about in a really interesting way in your book. And actually. I'd love to explore a little bit more about the four key levels that you describe that we can, at which we can deepen our sense of connection through ritual. Can you explain a little bit about what those are?
1: Yeah, because so so often when we use a word like connection, we immediately think, you know, connection with other people, especially now. (laughs) Um, And that is absolutely one of one of those four. And, you know, this is just one way of slicing the cake. You know, if people come up with three or five, uh, it's not a scientifically, you know, set number of four things. But for me, it's a very evocative way of thinking about what does it mean to feel truly connected Um, and so the way I structure it in the book is to think about first of all what is the, the quality of our connection with ourselves How how present do we feel in our own bodies? To to what extent do we feel at ease with our own story of who we are? So thinking about the the connection to self is that first pillar. The second one is that the one that we've mentioned about being connected with other people. And again, it's not just the kind of closest friends and family that I mean here, but it's a sense of being connected to a larger whole in some way, whether that's the geography that you live in or or the lineage that you come from, but a connection with other people that has a kind of multi-dimensional element to to what that connection looks like. Um, Then a connection to the natural world, a connection to place. uh, And finally, a connection to transcendence. So a sense of of, of something that's bigger than ourselves, which for some people, you know, might might be in the language of physics and and the cosmos. For other people, it might be a more theological inflected language about, you know, belonging to to divinity in some way. Um, So I I like to think about connection, that really rich experience of being at home in the world as, as having those four elements.
0: Mm, Being at home in the world, that's such a lovely reading on it. It's interesting, actually, because I was going to touch on this later, but it it weaves in Mm -hmm. nicely here. One of the points that you draw attention to in the book is this Buddhist idea that detachment from ego and detachment from the world are not the same thing. And yet I've met so many people, especially within (laughs) certain circles, who claim to have no ego, (laughs) yet seem so ill at ease, both within their bodies (laughs) (laughs) and within the world. And I just want to shake them and go... It's okay to have an ego, just see it as it is and relate it, you know, to to the larger whole, integrate it. Why do you think (laughs) we fall into this trap so easily? It's so frustrating.
1: (laughs) Oh, goodness. Yeah, I was going to say, it's very healthy to have an ego and I hope so because I've got a large one. (laughs) 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 No, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's important to have an ego and I I don't mean that in the sense of thinking you're better than someone else, but it is having a right-sized expectation of who you are. I think society often Shapes us, for example, this is very gendered, you know, men to, to think that they're bigger than they are and women to think that they're smaller than they are in some way. So it, I, I love that frame of being right sized because I think it's about being exactly as you are in, in exactly the way that you were saying. But, you know, what's what you're pointing to with your question is, why do we end up <laughs> saying those kind of things to each other? And to me, this is a really interesting outcome of this kind of post, but not quite post-religious <laughs> age that we're living in. And I should say my work really is centred on, on America, so I don't want to speak too much about the British context, which is, um, you know, I have opinions about, but it isn't grounded in the same research that I have in, in the US. But nonetheless, you know, a pattern that you see for people people who themselves aren't, uh, you know, haven't been formed or grown up in a specific religious tradition, very often we're still looking for the things that religion might have given us, right? A sense of uh, a, a strong community being one of them, but also the rituals to mark changes in our lives and a and story that makes sense of who we are and what what is happening in the world to some extent. And I think you're seeing in a kind of you know, largely secular context, Buddhism has a particular power um, because it doesn't come in, or at least it's not presented as having strong theistic implications. So in, in a way that's different from Christianity, say, where you have to wrestle with this very central notion of the divinity of Jesus and the existence of a, you know, a trinity and a god. In Buddhism, there is there is a lot of theistic theology happening, but it's kind of in the background of some of the core practices, at least as it's presented in the West, especially mindfulness, meditation, um, and and the way it can be integrated into kind of pop psychology means that we have a lot of people who are forming their own sense of spirituality based on things that they've heard or that they've read, which, you know, I I, I don't want to denigrate that, but I do think that it can leave us with a rather thin understanding of what these traditions were actually saying.
0: And one of the distinctions you make also There's a difference between tradition, which is vibrant and alive, and the dogmas that can become quite stagnant and stuck. And I know from... From my experience, I was raised in a Catholic upbringing and I hated it for yeah. so many of the reasons that you described. And yet, and you know, hearing you talk about these gorgeous rituals, singing to animals, that's like, that's my people. <laughs> I would have been so much happier in a barnyard singing a song to a cow who is mooing appreciatively or probably trying to get me to shut up. Um, so there, there, there is a, a, such a deep appeal to me of these beautiful rituals, especially yeah. where they pertain to, to connection with nature, in my case, yeah. um, that are really so evocative that I feel you know, there is a hunger for, you know, there's a reason why so many wonderful books and podcasts are emerging now to try and tap us back into this sense of the imaginal, the mythical, the ritual, the, the larger than self. Um, why do you think that's happening now particularly?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is that there has been such a, a massive change in how society engages what we would call religion. You know, mm. for the whole of human history humans have engaged in religious practices Um, and it's really very recent that this kind of the age of the secular has appeared although I would argue very strongly that religion hasn't disappeared, it's just changed. And so it's showing up in in different places, you know, whether it's your meditation class in the workplace, you know, the retreats that people go on, the crystals that they buy, the tarot cards that they do when they get together with a, you know, glass of wine. Um, So I think religious life is still very rich and interesting, but it's been deinstitutionalized, at least again in in, in the West. And you're seeing this growing chasm between the language, the rituals, the, the communities that are within Religious institutions, you mentioned the Catholic Church, I think it's a great example, and people who were nonetheless, you know, whether overtly or, or, or kind of quietly. Uh, exploring spiritual life through what they read, what they listen, where they go. the kind of chasm between the institution and the individual is just growing and growing. And so what you end up then with it is, is exactly as you said, kind of people exploring their own spiritual life. But it's very hard to do it on your own. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's even more difficult to kind of make sure that what you do end up finding embodies the values that are important to you. Mm. So one thing that you see enormously at the moment is the way in which capitalism and spirituality interact. Um, right, whether it's in some of the communities that we've studied, like SoulCycle, for example, or fitness classes more generally, uh, where people are paying really good money (laughs) to get into a a fitness class that is, of course, about the exercise, but is also about an experience of kind of breaking through the barrier of the everyday into a a rich emotional experience where they feel part of something bigger. Um, Or it might be, you know, some of those more, Uh, uh, expensive retreats or or products that are out there. But nonetheless, I I think it really does point to that hunger, as you said, that we as human beings are meaning making creatures, Mm -hmm. we're social creatures, we're always looking for story, we're always looking for ways in which we can belong to something bigger than ourselves. You know, you even see that in the rise of kind of new cults that are, you know, everywhere, whether it's a a a really dangerous cult, or whether it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek, jokey cult, uh, again, exercise phenomena, I think, can really fit into that. There is something in us that just longs for those experiences of deeper connection.
0: Mm. And actually, speaking of cults, there's a passage in the book that really struck me, where you write that a strong community should not deny one's individuality, and that this is where the threshold into cults can sometimes happen. And So I guess, given that the search for meaning for so many people is really booming right now. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty and we know that uncertainty and fear is fertile territory for this kind of search to to ignite. You know, the popularity and sway of groups such as QAnon and so on seem to be gaining momentum. (laughs) How how do you think we can engage perhaps more wisely with groups in such a way that we can assess them? Do they help us to flourish? Is this taking me down a rabbit hole? I mean, because it's, The thing about community and and feeling like we belong, it's such a deep need, it's so seductive that it can be very difficult to resist especially when things are difficult yes um (laughs) what are your thoughts around that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah there are a few things that I always just keep my eyes open for in terms of when I'm visiting a community for example just to get a sense of its health um as well as its vibrancy Uh, one of the easiest ways I, I I kind of try and identify between a community and a cult is you know does the community offer people pathways of dignity into the community and out of the community huh. because a, a healthy community will, will welcome people to b- become more engaged to take on leadership you know to become really uh, at the center of the community and they'll also let people go with dignity if they you know may, maybe their life circumstances have changed maybe they're moving somewhere well, whatever it is um, maybe there's just a period of time when they need to step away absolutely fine a cult will not let you do that or at least the cost of of leaving is so intense that you know all social relationships are cut off with the other members So that's that's kind of one nice easy rule, (laughs) which 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 I try and keep in mind. But you know, I I always look for things like you know, are are people able to express authentic emotion? You know, is there laughter? Is there tears? Um, Without it, threatening the community? Is there a healthy mix of leadership? Um, How do people engage conflict in the community? Is it something that cannot be talked about or is always overly aggressive? Or or are there kind of systems and structures that help people navigate conflict in in a healthy way? Because I think there is a little bit of a myth at the moment, because we all long for community so much. We kind of build up community to be this wonderful thing, which it is. But one of my favourite mentors, who's an 87-year-old Catholic nun, Sister (laughs) Sue Mostella, she has lived in community for my goodness, you know, at this point, nearly 70 years of her life. And she will be the first to say that community is wonderful and it's awful. (laughs) Because we often only see the benefits of it in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, meaning, people eating dinner together, you're dancing, you're singing, you're having a great time. There's support there when you need it. But the other side of that is that you have to support other people Mm -hmm. and other people can have a claim on your life and your time and your money, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. And I think, to some extent, we've been so shaped by this individualistic culture that we're in that we expect to engage with community as we would uh, as a consumer. You know, that it's there for us to use and manipulate and, and buy and, and not buy in the way that we want to. But that's part of the experience of, of community and community ritual is that you lose some of that control. And that can actually be very destabilizing. And uh, people often go through a phase of kind of a honeymoon phase when they're part of a new community and then a real heartbreak because they're seeing up close the way that this community is failing them and will fail them as as every community always does.
0: It's a difficult one because as you're speaking and talking about this this kind of I guess it's like the honeymoon period of a relationship where you're so full of fantasy and expectation of what it could potentially be, of the needs it could fulfill, the transformation yes. it could, you know, <laughs> enable in your in your life that it's it's very easy to forget that then the work really starts
1: (laughs) then there's washing up yeah exactly
0: I remember a few years ago I came to Barcelona to do a three-month course in wow in realist art and then I ended up deciding to stay and I remember the day that I got the phone call saying yes that's fine I yeah made the decision at 2am on too many vermouths the night before (laughs) I remember going to school and thinking oh my god this is brilliant and I kid you not within the same breath I had this feeling of oh fuck (gasps) now I'm in it for three years with these people. And it was this sense of dread that washed over me. It was such an interesting set of feelings all at once to experience. And I thought, wow, isn't that, isn't that unusual? So like, do you think that we can unlearn some of the expectations that we have come to think of as normal in order to gather the benefits of community and to be able to, to navigate the difficult things?
1: Absolutely. And, and this is why I'm so passionate about ritual because, you know, just as learning a language or, or you know, building up strength in the gym, you know, our, our experience and facility with community is about practice. Mm. Um, and I would be you know, the first to say, don't go from, from uh, thinking about this for the first time to signing up to a five-year, you yeah. know, monastic community, <laughs> right? And in fact, monastic communities are a great example because they build these on-ramps, you know, to become part of the community because they understand that you can't just go from zero to hero mm-hmm. with a different frame of, of living. Um, and so if you want to become a nun or a monk, for example, very often there's a period of visiting, getting to know the community, its rhythm of life, of practicing that rhythm at home you're away from the community and then the first commitment isn't you know a vow for a lifetime but it's to 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 be there for a year for example just to Mm. see how it goes and you can leave anytime no harm no foul Um, and if that year is successful then you might you might make a commitment for three years and after that you might make a commitment for five years and only then do you, are you invited to make a lifetime vow? So there's this kind of on-ramp process, knowing that there's going to be a, a process of formation, to use that traditional Christian word, um, right? In, so that we are formed to be a certain way. Um, and that's what every ritual is always doing, right? Every practice, whether it's a, mindful, a mindfulness meditation or prayer or singing together or, or, you know, going for a silent nature walk, all of these things are cultivating certain values and, and certain, uh, a certain capacity for attention within us so that we become a certain way. And I think one of the things that's so important as we look at our own life of ritual and our own life of practice is how are we being formed? Mm-hmm. And is the way that we're being formed the person that we want to be in the future? Because formation is always happening, right? If you're going to the supermarket, if you're going to a, a, a baseball game, whatever it is, right? We're always being formed to behave in a certain way. And, and the more we do that, the more we become like that. Um, and so that, that's what I love. That's kind of the countercultural, slightly re- revolutionary element of, of these practices that I'm so passionate about, is that I really think that they are part of how the world changes not as just one person at, one at a time but it's when we come together in community around these practices that's when real transformation happens
0: it's funny the, the idea of formation i'm thinking you know what that would be a good way to encourage people to test drive what it might be like to marry before they actually go through the, the motions because that's one of the few rituals we have left right so like why not really approach it with a little bit of wisdom and light-heartedness and and try it first
1: absolutely no, I mean, what, what, uh, before I got married to my husband, one of the great joys was, you know, the intentional conversations that we had that were facilitated by uh, a mentor of mine who was uh, officiating the wedding mm. and, and and is a minister and is just wonderful. Um, and it was, you know, in a small way, it was that kind of test drive, which is like, okay, so how are you going to handle the fact that one of you has debt and the other one doesn't? What do you really know about the kind of family that you want to have in the future? You know, whatever it is, uh, you know, nearly always sex and money are the two <laughs> the two pain points. So that's good to focus on them. Um, but that's a little bit of that test drive. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I want to weave this in a slightly different direction. There's another book that I recently finished reading, you may have come across it, or maybe not. It's quite an obscure title, I think, but it's called The disappearance of rituals and it was written by yeah I I have a feeling you might like it it's by a guy whose name is Byung-Chul Han who is professor of philosophy and cultural studies at the University of the Arts in Berlin Mm. problem is that he speaks in Korean and in German neither of which I can speak (laughs) so I had to get a translation of the book But one of the themes that he explores is how we have come to lose so many of the symbolic structures inherent in ritual behaviour. And he touches on all sorts of things, including our desire for authenticity, which he sees as quite narcissistic, the adoption of dataism, so valuing knowledge over wisdom and deciding that transparency is a good thing. These, These factors that strip away the mythical and the ambiguous. And I'm curious to ask, from your perspective... Whether you think we no longer value ritual as much as previous generations, and if so, maybe why? What is it about our current moment in time that has made us Mm. lose sight of its value?
1: Oh, that's very compelling. I want to read it. Um, I mean, the the (laughs) first answer that jumps to my mind is that you know the the grand narrative that uh, we—and I say we in the sense of the the, the kind of the Christian um, West—that we had for you know nearly two thousand years was a was a theological story, um, and it changed over time right You, you see how uh, you know Constantine as as an emperor imposes Christianity as a state religion that shifts the story you see the Reformation you see monastic movements right all, all of these shift and, and alter what that grand narrative is but it 's certainly one that shared so much so that if you were to walk around you know in eighth century what, what is now France and ask people about their religion it wouldn't be a separate category from culture, for example, or from um, even geography or, 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 or economy. So t- to some extent, we impose a little bit of our constructs of how we think about what religion is onto the past in a way that, that, that that's interesting itself. But I'm moving away from my central point, which is to say that I think that that kind of grand story has been replaced at least somewhat by a a scientific one or even a scientistic one, if I can say that, in the sense that we believe that the ultimate can be answered by scientific understanding. And I, I think here it's helpful to make a distinction between science is an incredible discipline to help us understand how things happen. But it struggles to answer the question why? Um and, and why does it matter? And that's you know always going to be a question that that has to draw on uh, things that that go beyond just our scientific understanding, but nonetheless you know that dataism that you mentioned, the belief that rituals are are not useful to us because they 're not uh, maybe obviously productive uh, in the sense of of creating value that that is recognized by the market you know a, a lot of these things I think fall into that into that trap. The best scientists are often uh, and I think the best religious leaders are often the ones who 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 don 't see them as opposing kind of Friends or, or sources of knowledge, but as ones that can combine very beautifully and, and I, I hope to, I hope to do the same but I, but I think in this case it, that would be one of the kind of core reasons that I would point to as to how that how that has shaped our, our dominant culture. And certainly ritual is much less prominent. Although, uh, you know, there are wonderful and interesting pockets of it. Either that remain, um, you know, even thinking about, for example, you know, in the UK, thinking about the 11th of November, right? This season where everyone wears poppies, right? So you can still find a lot of ritual in popular culture, but it might not necessarily be under the auspices of, of kind of a, a grand uh, shared moment that mm. that is... Uh, centred around the church for example.
0: Mm. And even the rituals that we do have so for instance you know bonfire night the 5th of November. Yeah. Um, I, I love that idea as a ritual but I much prefer it as a ritual of letting go than of burning someone who stood up to a corrupt government. I'm like guys why are we celebrating someone being thrown onto a fire? Like, <laughs> so it's also about like the, the symbolic meaning of the action that you're taking and I think so many of us engage in actions which allow us to come together and together, but they don't deepen our experience of belonging because there isn't a central tenet that we're that we're celebrating through the act, if that makes sense.
1: I love that you're pointing to this because it, it it actually is the central kind of invitation, I think for us to think about ritual design. Because one of the things that will happen, and and you pointed to this a little bit earlier in the conversation when we were thinking about the difference between tradition and convention, Mm. is that the convention, and this is Thomas Merton's work I'm drawing on here, but convention says, this is the way we've done it that's the way we're always going to do it, right? And so, if you think about bonfire night, right, it's always got a guy on top of it. It's where we're, we're maybe half noticing the story that this was based on, which was the Gunpowder Plot, right, the 17th century, I think, um, and uh, and that's that's why we're doing it. But like as you said, you know, that story is less and less maybe resonant with us. So here's the invitation, which is to to dig into the tradition which is like, what is that ritual really about? What's the beating heart of it that had this particular expression? And is there something there that we can find that would help make this meaningful? To basically allow us to kind of go to the essence of what the ritual is about and find a way for it to be expressed. And the the key thing is that those... Traditions should always be responding to a historical and cultural context. Mm. They, they can't just live and travel through time and place without being changed by them. Um, because if they try to do that, nearly always they end up feeling irrelevant or boring or cruel, right? In <laughs> The way that I'd mentioned with my experience with the, with the Anglican Church. Um, but there's always, I think, a bridge to, to get us back into something interesting. So, you know, you might ask yourself now, well, what in modern Britain... <laughs> is the is the value of something like Bonfire Night? Well, I, I mean, let's talk about it. I don't know. I, it brings people together. It's a time to get outside. We look into the sky. There's fireworks. Like what? What are we reminded of? What kind of story could we could we connect to it? Um, mm. That's that's the kind of exciting work of ritual design for me.
0: And this this idea of being able to find a deeper beating heart of meaning within something is something that I know that you also do in your award-winning podcast, which I just recently <laughs> discovered. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it before. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Oh, my gosh, what a brilliant <laughs> idea. And I have to say, when when I came across the title that you guys had come up with, I was just blown away because my partner and I, when we started dating nearly four years ago now, we I can't tell yeah. you the number of times we have watched, for us it's a series, like the, <laughs> the films, and it really is somewhere that we find home in. Yeah. So yeah. I'd love you to speak a little about... The invitation that you give people through that wonderful podcast series to reframe and engage with the world um, and with themselves through this different lens, particularly Lectio Divina, which to my ear sounds like an amazing incantation one, one might hear at Hogwarts. <laughs> Can you tell us <laughs> Can you tell us what it is and, and what you hope to achieve with it? And yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's such a perfect segue, actually, if you're thinking about Bonfire Night, because, you know, if if you think about text study in religious communities, the obvious thing that you think about is the book that's being read, right? Whether it's the Bible, the Torah, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, th- th- these are always texts that are called sacred. Now, you can look at it two ways and you can think that the text is sacred or you think you or you can look at it as we do which is about the way in which people engage the text that's where the sacredness lives and so a text becomes sacred to us when we return to it as a community over time again and again to ask questions of ultimate meaning Um, and so my, my co-creators uh, Vanessa Zoltan and Ariana Nedelman and I, we all met in Divinity School um, and we we were all interested in the way in which people are engaging text already but Vanessa ended up writing her thesis about reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text and ran this wonderful small group where people were talking about mental health and Jane Eyre, talking about love and loss and Jane Eyre, and I was like, this is amazing but let's do it with a book that people actually read, <laughs> with, with no offence to the incredible genius of uh, of Bronte. But, um, you know, I was noticing that people were already turning to the Harry Potter books you know, either in a ritual, ritualistic way of, you know, it's a new year, I'm going to read the whole series again, yeah. or in times of sadness or trouble, you know, maybe that there, there was a breakup or a diagnosis or a death of a loved one. And this was a book in which they found comfort. Um, and so with millions of readers out there already loving this, this series and it being such a generative text, right? Not just the movies and the theme parks, but the fan fiction that people write, the, the art that's created, the, the hilarious uh, musical theatre productions that come. <laughs> Out of it, um, so it, it was a text that I could see people were already engaging with, with that kind of rigor and 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 uh, and love. Mm. And so, what we did was to take the traditional reading practices from Christianity and Judaism. Vanessa comes from a, an atheistic Jewish background, and and to bring those ways of engaging the text. To Harry Potter. And one of those practices is Lectio Divina that you, that you mentioned. And this is, I mean, the Latin translation is simply uh, sacred reading, Lectio Divina. Um, and, and what it is, is a sort of four-step process that you bring to a snippet of text. So you might choose a sentence or a small small phrase that comes from the, from the book. And then you ask yourself four questions. At least this is the way that we, we ask the questions. First of all, What's happening in this piece of text? So what's the narrative explanation? This is usually the way that we read things, like what's going on, who's here, what, you know, what's, what's happening. Then we ask um, what kind of allegorical images or, or stories, or um, you know, maybe there's a poem that you're reminded of or a movie scene or another piece of text. What, what does this connect to in your kind of imaginative space? And it's a way of opening up our, our minds and hearts to, to, to kind of think creatively about where this, where this little piece of text takes us, it's expanding our imagination. And then we turn the questions around and the third question is sort of a mirror because it asks, what in your own life have you experienced that, that you're reminded of when you read this text? So suddenly you're thinking about, you know, your sister who's just had a baby or the fact that, the, you know, the garden still needs pruning or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't have to be rational. It's really an invitation. And then finally, the, the, the traditional way of asking this, uh, asking this question in the Christian context is, what is God asking you to do through this text? The way that we ask that question is to say, what, what, what does this text invite you to do? So what action do you want to take because of this reflection process? And, and so it's a totally different way of reading because mm-hmm. you're not looking for holes in the plot or to, to understand exactly what's going on. What you're doing instead is using the text as a prism to think about the big questions in your own life. And it means that because our lives are always changing, the text is always alive because our lives are different, the text is different. And so we've been reading, uh, we're, I'm literally about to record the epilogue of book seven, so the oh. very, very end oh. <laughs> of the whole seven book series. We've been going now five years and, oh and doing gosh. chapter by chapter, episode by episode with an amazing community of you know tens of thousands of readers reading with us and, and engaging in the conversations. Mm. And the final thing I'll say, Natalie, which it, this for me is the most beautiful part of the whole process, is that as any good ritual does, it takes us beyond ourselves. So the community of listeners, you know, isn't just getting together to talk about the books, although we have, you know, more than a hundred local groups and etc. But when COVID hit, they self-organized a mutual aid fund of podcast listeners. They raised tens of thousands of dollars every year for, for, for charity. So it's, it, you know, the practice has shaped the community to become the kind of generous, justice-seeking, you know, mutually supportive community that, that I believe we, we need more of in the world. So I'm just, I'm in awe of all our listeners because they're, they're amazing. They've taken this practice and, and just run with it.
0: And what an extraordinary thing to be able to start and to create, to give people a place to come together in that way.
1: I mean, I, I would not have believed you if you told me <laughs> we'd be where we are. But it's been, I mean, that's the other thing is it's genuinely fun. You know, we record every week and, and it's a chance that I get to reflect on life with Vanessa. And it just happens that we do it with Harry Potter, and not the Bible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when we're thinking about the importance of community, another thing that, that really struck me was, that you wrote about when we feel far from each other or isolated, we tend to strive, instead of reaching out, actually for self-preservation. And so given given the mass isolation that many people have had to endure this past year, what are some of the ways in which we might reconnect with one another as we emerge from this crisis?
1: Oh, heavens, yes. Mm. Well, please, may we emerge from it. <laughs> to, <laughs> today, I'm feeling rather doomful as oh. I looked at the new variants in, in New York. But um, no, as you say, I mean, uh, God willing, think things, are, things are looking up. You know, I think one of the things we've really been forced to confront is the structure of our relationships. You know, one of the things that was severely disrupted is the kind of tangential connections, you know, people that mm. you might recognize on the train or run into at a conference or, um, you know, a, a colleague or a friend of a friend that you'd see at a party. And I, what's so interesting to me is that We know now just in our bodies that belonging isn't just about the Zoom call with the family, as wonderful as that is, or or, or the chance to be with our closest friends. But it's really that kind of multi-layered dimensional experience of relationship that gives us a sense of of well-being. Um, So I think one one of the things that I would be looking for is to think about what are the places in which, you know, I'll, I'll be with my committed relationships, absolutely. But also, what are the places where I'm going to have that kind of uh, serendipitous encounter that brings such delight? And that's something that can be designed for, you know, that d- doesn't just have to happen by itself. So am I going to join a squash league? No. But am I going to join, you know, something else? Maybe, yes. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, we're seeing the value of those associations in a way that maybe we hadn't before.
0: Mm. And so I wonder then, given that the mythical and the everyday live pretty intertwined with one another, you know, we, we sort of think, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if we can just live in this ritual space all the time? But of course, we need to have our feet on the ground and do the laundry and the rest of it. What are some of the practices or ways that you found to find balance or integration between the two?
1: Yeah, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a... Um, I guess I have have a slight bone to pick, which I'll shall <laughs> do in this answer. I think when people talk about ritual or spirituality, very, very quickly, you end up going down the, well, you must take two hours when you wake up and you must drink lemon water and you must stand (laughs) in eight different poses and, you know, not look at your phone. All of which, listen, if you can do it, fabulous. Good for you. But I've become really passionate about thinking about rituals that happen um, either kind of once a year in that sense of having a calendar of rituals. Mm. And of course, I'm revealing my own experience in... uh, <laughs> in the Steiner school, there, but you know, it, it, it's such a way of bringing delight into the 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 kind of the rhythm of the week when you know that wow, okay, it's Valentine's Day. We always bake those types of cookies and cakes or um, we're coming up on, you know, uh, (laughs) since living in America, I've become passionate about college basketball uh, and there's a large (laughs) tournament here. This this was the way I bonded with my in-laws in Kentucky. Uh, But there's a large tournament (laughs) here in in March called March Madness. So I'm like, okay, I've got my blue face paint, you know, to support (laughs) the team in the opening weekend because I know that's coming up. So having that kind of structure of time through the year is one way I think we can speak to those rituals. But the other one, is to, to think about rituals on a weekly basis. And this is where, for me, I was really inspired by the Jewish tradition of the Sabbath. Um, mm. And on Friday night, I, you know, turn off my phone and I turn off my laptop and I light a little candle and sing a little song from my summer camp and kind of enter into this tech Sabbath time mm. where I, for, for 24 hours, really try and, uh, and, and step away from the, from the tools of production, as it were. And for me, it's become a really powerful way of keeping a rhythm. Um, even during COVID, which, which is just given a bit of structure and shape to the week um, and, and because it happens every seven days I find it a little easier to, to really stick to that rather than feeling awful if I've missed a couple of days of you know, sitting on my meditation cushion
0: So within that, though, is Spotify allowed so you can have music on that day? Or is it like, (laughs) no, acoustic instruments only?
1: Listen, I will say you are your own ritual designer. So you design what works for you. For me, because I have nearly always got music or a podcast on in the background, it's actually really helpful to have the silence. Um. And then from within the silence, often I'm like, oh, but I really want to sing. And (laughs) then I'll sing. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's a different way of of making music and engaging with music um for me singing is the most important spiritual practice and it's the thing i miss most singing mm. with other people during this time um so that's definitely the thing i'm most looking forward to kind of post post covid but but for me yeah that time is is it's kind of helpful to be confronted with silence
0: and so i'd like to ask then given obviously i've really enjoyed reading your book is there a book that you would recommend that people pick up and have a read and why
1: oh my gosh, I'm looking at my <laughs> shelves. There's so many. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say two. If you're interested right. in the focus on, on kind of designing community or hosting conversations that are important and interesting, Priya Parker's book, The Art of Gathering, is just fabulous. And there's, there's so much wisdom there about how to cu- kind of cultivate a, 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 a healthy, provocative, interesting wonderful gathering. So that's definitely one. I mean, one of the most important kind of theological figures in my life was uh, the Irish poet and and (laughs) short-lived Catholic priest John (laughs) O'Donoghue, who kind of has this kind of Celtic spirituality focus in his writing, but it's much more than that. And his book, Anamkara, is kind of the classic book if you're starting to read him. But the, the book I really love is called To Bless the Space Between Us. And he has these beautiful poems that are also blessings for all sorts of different life experiences. So it might be, you know, on the end of a relationship or on the death of a loved one, um, you know, all, all sorts of kind of occurrences that we'll we'll all experience he has these wonderful blessings and his little kind of essay at the beginning of that book is a is a great introduction to think about the art of blessing so Mm. the art of gathering and the art of blessing how about that
0: wonderful that sounds great (laughs) and then moving on to another large question if you were to imagine what you might like your legacy to be how would you begin to answer that
1: do you know, I, I've actually thought about, <laughs> I told you I had a big ego, I've <laughs> uh, thought about that, <laughs> and, and only because there's been a few things that, that I've been part of where I'm really, where I'm really proud of what happened. The, the podcast, honestly, is one, because of the relationships that people have formed, the friendships, there's now housemates and, and partners and all sorts of wonderful things that have come out of that but i guess you know if if i were to die tomorrow probably the most impactful thing i've done is is hosting a number of convenings of people who lead innovative kind of new forms of community some secular some spiritual and, and people who would otherwise never have met, you know, people doing maker spaces and, and creative arts mingling with, you know, Mormon meditation leaders and, wow. and uh, Muslim small group leaders with CrossFit instructors. You know, people who <laughs> on the face of it have nothing in common. But once you dig deeper and, and, you know, these are the themes that we talked about in that paper, how we gather those themes of transformation, of community, of accountability, of creativity... And when people connected at that level, there was just such an amazing, hopeful and inspiring sense of, wow, even though this is not one institution, there is this growing kind of rhizomic, you know, network of mm. people who are cultivating the conditions for, for what matters in life. And, and I think the more we can connect with one another, with everyone who's doing that work, the stronger and bolder we become, and, and hopefully the better at what we're doing. So that's, yeah. that's probably the thing I'd be most proud of or grateful for for, for for being part of my life.
0: That sounds beautiful. And I can't wait until we're able to travel again so I could come and visit one of those experiences. Yes. It sounds just amazing. So for everyone who's listening, I'd like to ask if there is a question that you might like people to dwell with right now.
1: Hmm. I mean, the, the thing that I've been thinking about is this question, which is what is worthy of my devotion? Because um, I think it's very easy for us to fall into devotions that we didn't mean to have, whether it's a reality TV series or, <laughs> you know, an orientation of blame or what, whatever it is. And just to really try and think about, well, what, what is worthy of my devotion? And then to to try and practice that devotional set of practices or, or rituals, yeah.
0: And then finally, what vision of the world are you holding for others? And what one thing can we do to move in that direction?
1: Oh, well, that's good. Well, I'm, I'm kind of inspired by the language that we use at Sacred Design Lab, which is the organisation I, I set up with my, my two co-founders. And we talk about a vision in which every person is connected to their inherent goodness, known and loved in communities of care, and bountifully giving their gifts towards beauty, justice, and wholeness. And I think the first step for me has been to be in relationship with other people who share that kind of vision. uh, And from that, all all good things will emerge.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hype. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahigh.com forward slash the podcast, or reach out to me on Twitter at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.